I listen to the Black Guy Who Tips podcast because Rod and Karen are hot. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Black Guy Who Tips podcast. Your host Rod and Karen, and we're live on a Wednesday, ready to do some podcasting. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podomatic, Spotify, iHeartRadio google play wherever you hear podcasts that's where we're at make sure you leave us five star reviews we appreciate those on itunes and stitcher you can email us the black guy tips at gmail.com if you want to leave comments things of that nature we appreciate everybody takes the time out to do that the official weapon of the show is the taser and unofficial sport bullet ball. and bullet ball extreme and today i feel like is a cause for a celebration you it know is. <laughs> because of the coronavirus we've been able to you know like settle down look at our list of people that we've like had on wanted to have on and say hey you know you can't be that busy <laughs> nobody's that busy right now yeah today is no exception we got our uh one of our faves senior contributor to cbc sports author uh you know i i, I soon to be published author, uh book author uh not that soon <laughs> not that soon well you know what um soon is relative we, we, we speaking in existence yeah i'm not gonna let you push me back no you're gonna, you're gonna get all this love uh <laughs> national national newspaper award winner ted x talker and morgan is morgan author sports writer morgan p campbell where i say the p stands for preeminently preeminently published what's going on man hey man it's so good to be here i missed you guys um and like i'm actually busier now than i was pre-pandemic but that's a good thing yeah um, but all i listen I always make time for you guys oh man well first of all um it's been a while we haven't had morgan on the show show minutes since years, i man. went to go look it, i went to go look before the show started 2014 I knew it had been a hot minute. It was, yeah. a, it really? was November. That's six years. Yeah. yeah, you don't get married. You don't had a baby. You, I mean, yeah. Well, I was so just, basically, yeah, I was just gonna I say interview, I interviewed you guys before the last time you guys interviewed me. Right. Yeah. Remember so, we doing that story about Cam Newton? Exactly. Yes. So just go wow. ahead, uh, go ahead, catch us up on the last uh, six years. We, we'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys already ran it down. I got married. Uh, my wife is in this picture somewhere. So that's her at the front. Of course. Um. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you wouldn't put up a picture of her in the middle or the back. I mean, <laughs> no, exactly. come on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I got married. Um, uh, Perdita and I got married uh, around this. No, sorry. It was June 2017. Mm. And then uh, last year, April, we had a little girl named Nova. So Nova's 15 months and three days old right now. And Aww. she is doing the things that 15 months old do which is <laughs> not letting us rest like at all like she sleeps 12 hours but then the 12 hours she's awake it is no there like you cannot let her out of your sight because she can they quit touch it she's gonna grab it and if she grabs it she's gonna break it right and break it on purpose and then say uh-oh because she learned that word <laughs> it's fun <laughs> i wouldn't trade it man <laughs> yeah and then like you know you're in canada still um yes like are you happier now are you happy in canada because you you know you're not down here dealing with you know the shit storm that we have as like in office the obvious uh handling of the corona mishandling of coronavirus and all that stuff i feel like it's got to be better up there in just those aspects yeah uh people always ask me if i'm gonna move back to the u.s Mm. and i always say well 
for the right job I would, you know, but now I, you know, I have a wife and a daughter and it has to be the right situation for them too. And there's not a lot of cities I would live in. Um, like no offense to small towns and suburbs and all that, but you know, if you're not talking about Chicago, right. And maybe one or two other places, you know, you'd have a hard time getting me to go back. This is no offense to, I don't know, mm-hmm. Omaha, but yeah. I'm go back there. <laughs> like, 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 uh, so around the last time you guys interviewed me, this is when I was doing this dance with Jason Whitlock when they were getting ready to start uh, the undefeated. Mm-hmm. And he kept trying to get me to move to Akron to go work for him in Akron. Wow. Because he wanted somebody to write about LeBron James. And I kept thinking to myself, if I'm going to go someplace to write about LeBron James, I'm going to go to Cleveland. Right. Like, I'm not going to go to Akron. Like, I, especially from, I mean, the, the way that deal fell apart was he offered me – the job, but like less money than I was making already. And his point was that working for him, right? Mm. And working for ESPN was such a big opportunity. And my point was that with the opportunity should come money. Like if ESPN's right. the major league, I should get a raise. Well, not a pay cut. I like, mean, you should really pull yourself up by your bootstraps in my opinion. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, <laughs> if you're like, if you're major league baseball, you see a guy you like in Japan. Right, Ichiro. You don't say to Ichiro, "Hey, look, Ichiro, take a pay cut because when you come over here, you'll get better coaches in bigger stadiums." You say, "Hey, Ichiro, this is the major leagues. We're going to give you a pay raise." So right. That's basically where that fell apart. But I don't know. Um, like I've got family. Like most of my family's in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, I worry about them because of the coronavirus and because the president is threatening to bring what they're calling federal troops. And we don't know if these people are even troops because they don't identify themselves, you know, into cities like that. Right. Um, and so I do feel really lucky to be here, but there's a bit of, uh, more than a little bit of survivor's remorse, you know, as I got in because I am, I'm Canadian, but I'm American too. Right. And so it's like having two halves of your family, right? So just say your parents split up and you live with your mom. Uh, it doesn't mean you want to see bad things happen to your dad and his family. Right. Um, so that's how I feel. Uh, so yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm lucky to be here. Like I got a COVID test the other day, Riley. It was so easy. Like it literally, like I had an appointment for four o'clock. I was out of there by four oh six. Wow. Um, you know, got to joke with the nurse. She was like, yeah, lots of people come in on Monday because they drink all weekend. They wake up with a headache and they think they got the Rona. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> right, but but then I contrast that to what I see coming out of you know Texas and, and, right. and, and Arizona, like these hours long waits um, for tests and days and weeks long waits for results, and it doesn't have to be that because the, the other truth of it is like the countries are very similar mm-hmm. and very different, but they don't have to be that different. Right. Um, it's just that like where I live, uh, it's a, we're about two suburbs east of Toronto, like it, it's. It's far enough away from the city that, like, I wake up, there are deer, there are, like, hawks, condors, this kind of stuff. Not condors, like, vultures, mm-hmm. turkey buzzards, this kind of thing. But, um, so it, it feels a little bit rural. And, like, by Toronto standards, this city is very conservative. But, right. like, you know, I do see a lot of pickup trucks, but I see people wearing masks. Like, right. like issues like that have not become politicized here to the, to the extent that they have across the border. Um, you know, and there really is no reason. Yeah. Like the fundamental thing about just like caring about your fellow citizen, like that doesn't have to stop at borders, but for whatever reason it has. Yeah. But I do, I do feel fortunate to be here, but I also feel very guilty. Yeah. Well, it, go ahead, Karen. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was about to say, cause you have dual citizenship, right? 
Yes, yeah, because my parents were both born and raised. Like, I was born here, but my parents were both born in the U.S., and um, uh, I can't remember which 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 amendment that's a function of. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the – somebody in here will tell me. But, yeah, it's a birthright, right? If your parents are born on U.S. soil, uh, it doesn't matter where you're born. You're a U.S. citizen, so there you go. And U.S. citizenship, too, like, it is like herpes. You can't get rid of it. Actually, you, you know, it. it's probably like a function of, like, the – the 13th or some shit it's, it's this is what i think yeah, yeah that's what i suspect I, I just I'm, i don't have yeah. it in front of me because it's so. all it's always some shit like that where it's like black people here we go the, 14th, there is there you the go. 14th amendment yeah there so it's like black people do some shit and then it helps everybody you know what yeah. i'm saying yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. because exactly. i i think that for a lot of people they actually want to change the definition of yes. rights and I think a lot of people need to pay attention. Mm. It's like, yes, you may have been born and raised here, but if Trump gets his way, a lot of people will actually lose their citizenship, not realizing that if you fall under certain characteristics, that they almost can take it away from you. Well, they've been eroding them casually the whole time. Um, yes. You know, they started with like people born on military bases in other countries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's like they've been attacking citizenship and, uh, in immigrant status and work visa status consistently, um, the whole time, you know. So yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Um, the other thing I was going to ask though is cause I, I, I feel like your leadership obviously is better at this point. Um, I feel like we had a slight edge when we had Obama, but <laughs> no, even, more than a, more than a slight edge. Yeah, yeah, more but, than a slight edge. But I feel like that's a pretty significant advantage, man. Even with the blackface, I feel like y'all got the better part of the deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, have y'all been leveraging the blackface to get? uh your prime minister because like in virginia they they had a governor who had blackface and that that man has legislated them into the promised land okay so i feel like he was like we gonna make it to jerusalem come on yeah i feel like that should be part of the reason canada's doing better y'all should just be you know being like don't forget you did that blackface and he'll be like oh yeah um that's right uh reparations for everybody yes except there there aren't as many black people here like as a as Mm. there are more people there are more black people in the United States than there are people in Canada, or they're about the, the same. And then Canadian, black, black Canadians as a proportion of the population are much smaller group. Mm. And so the prime minister, even though he might now feel bad about having done blackface back in the day, doesn't feel bad enough about it to start giving black people stuff. Mm. Um, but what he has benefited from, and the premier of Ontario, who's like the governor, uh, so he, uh, Doug Ford, so you guys remember Rob Ford, he was the mayor that smoked crack. Yeah. This is, Doug, this is his big brother. And like, so he was supposed to be the smart one of the two. Um, and he ran on this populist platform and he was like Trump Jr., right? And he really looked up to Donald Trump. He tried to mimic Donald Trump to the point where his supporters would wear these hats that said, make Ontario great again. Oh uh, no. But where Rob, no, sorry, where Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau both benefited from was just the contrast to, to Donald Trump every day. These press briefings, like, you could still be an absolute incompetent moron, but as long as you had Donald Trump to contrast yourself against, you looked really empathetic and really smart and really organized. And so Doug Ford got all kinds of credit he didn't deserve just because he wasn't Donald Trump. Uh, Justin Trudeau, same thing. Although, I mean, the difference between those two and Donald Trump is that as incompetent as they both are and as, 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 as much as Doug Ford really still doesn't care about most, most of his constituents, mm. 
I don't know that either of them is the type of sociopath that would sit around and watch 150,000 people die right. rather than, you know, confront the truth. Yeah. The bar is below the ground. Like, I feel, yes. it's that thing where like Trump, Trump kind of gave everybody a boost. Like the thing, yeah. the thing I said is for people that were critical of Obama and there were some, you know, um, on the left and on the right. Mm like good luck after this shit like he he might well be jesus like there's never gonna be a time you can say anything about him because they followed it up immediately with the worst nigga ever so the um the other thing i was gonna ask um you were kind of involved in a uh in a hockey racial uh uh kerfuffle i guess is is a good way to call it man can you kind of tell the people about that no okay, okay give me some more specifics so uh, uh you got accused of, of being a, a diverse uh black journalist asking uh hockey a player about race oh, that one back in the that was back in the day that's yeah. like literally that was 20 years ago mm-hmm. um okay so what had happened was this is early in my career i was a uh, like an intern at the star at the toronto star that's probably like 22 23 around there and um Basically, the guy that covered the hockey team, he was sick, so I had to go fill in for him. And it was the day before Toronto played Edmonton. The thing about Edmonton is they had a bunch of black guys on the team. I think they had five black players, which on one NHL team is unprecedented. I don't think it's been unprecedented. I don't think it's done before, been done before or since. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they roll up, they go to practice, and I go do the story. Cause, and the thing was, too, like the fifth guy, was he was new. So it brought the number to five, so it made it newsworthy again. And so I go there and I interview the black players and the coaches and stuff just about race in the NHL. So the one guy everyone wanted to talk to was named Anson Carter because he was from Toronto. He was the only one of the group that was from Toronto. And so I'm asking him questions, and there's this old white guy asking him questions as well. And I'm asking about race in the NHL, and he's answering the questions. Fine, he's very comfortable. And, you know, he's used to talking about it. You know, and he's, he's, I'm asking him uh, stuff like, well, you know, how big of a factor is racism? He's like, yeah, it's a big factor. It's a factor in real life. It's a factor in my job too. I got to roll with the punches, blah, blah, blah. And I asked him too, like, do people try to, try to force political positions on you and get you promote political positions based on the fact that you are a black person in a white sport? Mm. He says, you know, people try to do that, but I'm not a politician. I'm a hockey player. Cool. So I go back, I write my story. And then <laughs> the next day I get to the office because this is before like papers had websites, but it wasn't like now where you were just tied to your computer all day. You know, and you're still the next morning reading your story in print. And then uh, the sports editor from the Star is like, "Hey, go read the National Post. Go check out uh, the guy's story on on Anson Carter." So I go read it, and um, like early high up in the story, there's a joke about Anson Carter's hair because he had locks. I'm like, okay, I don't like where this is headed. And then, <laughs> Come on. I assume this writer was white. Yes, absolutely. Because dreads are hilarious to white people. They're like, yes, oh, yes. Funniest yes. thing I've ever seen in my life. Black person yeah. with hair. <laughs> right. And so, uh, and there's a line, and this is, and the sports editor knew that the guy had written this. He just wanted to see what I would do. And he also, he was doing me a favor. He wanted to let me know, you know, what people were trying to say about me behind my back. And, uh, the line said, Pressed by a minority reporter to comment on racism in the NHL, Carter answered simply, I'm not a politician, I'm a hockey player. So, one, what does it matter that I'm a minority? 
two, I wasn't pressing him. I was asking him the question. He was answering it just fine. Like, this is a complete mischaracterization of the way this conversation took place. Right. Uh, and three, he did not answer simply, I'm a politician, I'm a hockey player. He talked about racism in hockey from these yeah. leagues to the NHL. And so here we have this guy. This is the question I was asking Anton Carter. People try to project stuff onto you. Mm. And he's like, they try, but I don't take it on because I'm not a politician. Now here comes this guy projecting this identity onto Anson Carter that Anson Carter's never had. Anson Carter was never Mr. I don't talk about race guy. He says, sure, I talk about race. There's limits to what I can do because I'm not a politician. I'm a hockey player. But you were pressing so, him, though. You you shined the interrogation right, right in his <laughs> so, eyes and yeah, said, yeah. Answer, answer the question. <laughs> right, right. So this was uh, the thing you have to remember, too, is that this, this is a white Canadian guy writing for a really conservative publication that's mm-hmm. the audience. He doesn't imagine, you know, that anyone in his audience looks like me or like Anson Carter. Right. And also, he saw me and didn't think that I was representing a bigger publication. He thought I was oh. just like a, like some kid, you know, on assignment for the school paper or whatever. Mm. Um, and so the other people in the office, it gets around. Like, they start reading it, and they know the guy's talking about me. So then they all start coming to me with their stories about how he was a dick to them. Mm. Um, and so the, the original guy that I was replacing that day, he's like, you know what you should do? I said, what? He's like, well, next time you see him, just punch him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Which I appreciate and I like that spirit, but, you know, because of the double standards, like the white sports writers, they can punch each other out and stay employed. Like, if I had done it, we would not be talking right now. Right. The consequences would have been way different. Yeah. So, but what I did do um, is that uh, I saw him a few weeks later at a basketball game. And um, he's there at his laptop. And I was like, hey, Tom Maloney, great to meet you, man. I really liked your story on Anson Carter. And he's telling his feelings. I was like, oh, thanks. He says, hey, when you get a minute, give me a call. We'll talk about it some more. And I took my business card, and above where it said reporter, I wrote minority. I just dropped it on the keyboard like that. (laughs) (laughs) A slight flex. A slight flex. Yes. That's the the last time I ever saw the guy. Like, he's around, but I have never interacted with him since then. Well, um, so down here in in America, when – george floyd got killed there was yes. like a mass like like there was obviously uprising in the street there was obviously people marching protest but there was also something that kind of kicked off that was more like virtually and culturally of like black people uh feeling like we can finally air out our gripes that we've had at work and be like hey i was not listened to or this person uh discriminated <laughs> against me um and to the point where it even kind of tricked into like move back into like me too movement again like people yes. bringing up all kinds Absolutely. of stuff does yeah. that stuff cross borders like do Absolutely. Can, okay Absolutely. so y'all had like your own like oh and then this one time up there yeah okay and canadians get really 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 upset with me when i say this mm. it's the truth so canada is a suburb of the united states um, so if you think of Canada as a suburb of the United States, everything makes sense, right? Mm. Like, all these uh, all these uh, problems you associate with the big city, we might have in here, but maybe not in the same degree. Uh, a lot more white people. Uh, it does better make healthcare, sense. All this stuff. It's very much like a suburb. And the fact that, like, uh, media-wise, Canadians are still very tethered to what happens in the U.S. and influenced by it. Mm. Um, so one thing white Canadians love is some type of racial controversy or crisis or catastrophe in the U.S. because then it allowed white Canadians to um, mm. look less racist by contrast, right? right? The thing Canadians always like to talk about is that, like, Canada was a destination on the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. right? 
but they don't tell you like how many people, how many black people moved back to the U.S. after the end of the Civil War uh, because the racism they tolerated here was more tolerable than slavery, right? But not worth not worth sticking around for, it. right? <laughs> And they don't it's, like, they, it's like you get up there and you're like, damn, they still racist and it's cold. Right. right. And I'm freezing. Or like in Canada, um, you know, on the, on the $10 bill, on the new $10 bill, is a woman named Viola Desmond. Her picture is on, on the money. Black lady from Nova Scotia. And she's famous because she broke the color barrier at this movie theater in Nova Scotia. Where Nova Scotia's had black people since 1783. Mm. Right, since the end of the Revolutionary War, where... where a lot of uh, formerly enslaved people from Maryland, Virginia, you know, the, the, the Redcoats said, here, if you fight for us, we'll give you freedom. At the end of the war, they're like, we lost, but we still, yeah, we promised you freedom. We're going to send you up to Nova Scotia and give you the worst land possible to farm it. Uh, good luck. But um, she and Nova Scotia had Jim Crow style segregation. She mm. broke this law in this movie theater and went to jail because she would not leave the white section of the movie theater. Mm. And now she's on the money. But in Canada, like, it's the same, very much what happens now. Like, you celebrate her for being a pioneer, but you don't celebrate the barrier she broke because if you address the barrier she broke, then you gotta address your own racism. And Canadians don't like yeah. to do that. But in situations like this, um, yeah, like, there's been this reckoning, the same reckoning, uh, that U.S. organizations are having about race and diversity and inclusion. An opportunity like Canadian outlets are having them too, and including, uh, and especially the media industry. Cause what happens here too is that everyone like, every outlet likes a story about how the other outlets are racist. Um, right. And, but by the, after three weeks, like everyone has successfully pointed the finger at every other outlet. It's like the Batman meme. Right. And, but eventually everyone gets covered. So that, that, that has been going on now. And cause when I talk to like younger journalists, Cause it's funny that people now see me as like this OG, but I'm like, listen, man, whatever you want out of your bosses, go get it right now because George Floyd was May 25th. Right yeah. now we're in July. We don't know how long like, all these white people are really going to stay committed to, to right. this new, uh, diversity push, this new inclusion push, this new anti-racism push. Like I was writing the column in the star. So what it feels like is January in the gym. Mm-hmm. So I'm not telling you guys you have yes. bad intentions, but what I'm saying is you have a history of bad habits. So right now you're really motivated. Motivation fades. What do your habits look like? When your motivation fades, you fall back on your habits. So if you don't learn some good habits between now and the end of your motivation, um, we're going to be right back to the same thing. So I uh, am still very skeptical right. about like the extent to which all these organizations are really committed uh, you know, to removing the glass ceilings that they place over black employees' heads, black journalists' heads. Uh, we'll see, but that, no, that, that reckoning is, is very much happening here in Canada. Yeah, white yeah. guilt is a finite resource. Yeah, it, <laughs> yes. it, 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 exactly. it doesn't last forever, and it's one of those things where Dude. time will tell. And if you go back and look at history, uh, after slavery, it was a full eight years, and they was like, you know what, we're going back. Right. So, yeah. you know, that goes to tell you, you know, even if it lasts for a quote unquote long period of time, eventually, enough time will pass where people will forgive mm. you know because the thing is white people want to connect you with other white people so they are willing to forgive your racism because it didn't directly impact them right yes and they're exactly. willing to overlook that because when you were talking about 
people from up here crossing the border and going to canada y'all dealt with some of the same shit we dealt with down here it might not have been on the law book but y'all didn't treat indigenous people right y'all took their land too you know y'all separated also so a lot of people think just because you're in canada with maple syrup and shit and everything sweet and dandy and we can speak 45 languages that it's, it's also it's listen if, if in a lot of in some places in canada it was on the law books and the difference uh between canada and the u.s is only it's not a difference. The difference is not whether or not white people are racist and the structures are racist because they are. The difference is in the proportion of black citizens. Right. That's okay. it. If there was ever an era in Canada where in a certain part of the country more than half the people were black, you would see all of the same things. Because mm-hmm. any place in Canada where there have been any significant number of black people, black people uh, from those places can tell you about all the racist stuff they've had to put up. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a question of, 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 whether or not the racism exists, it's only a question of the numbers. If Canada was 10 to 12 percent black, if there were regions in Canada that were 30 to 40 percent black, uh, you would hear different stories. Yeah. But Canada, because they haven't had a ton of black people for a long time in a lot of places, uh, this racism hasn't been put to the test. So all people remember are uh, the stories of the Underground Railroad. Right. And I, listen, I could go on and on and on. And that's, and, on. and that's what they want to teach you, right? right. Like, yes. Like, it's just like down here, like, uh, you know, you learn, oh, the, the North wasn't racist because, you know, they didn't have Jim Crow. They didn't have that. And then you're like, <laughs> they didn't have black people. If you follow the history until they had black people, then everything changed. It was like, yes, uh, it did. you know, <laughs> exactly. like we don't exactly. hang, we don't hang black people up here because there's none. And then there's right. <laughs> some move and they're like, uh, you want me to fight in the civil war for them? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go hang some. You know, the Confederacy was only down, uh, south. You know what? We was up in Pennsylvania and guess what we saw? Motherfucking Confederate flag. So, uh, right. that ain't nowhere near North Carolina. Right. Listen, I saw Confederate flags, uh, when Colin Kaepernick, the 2016 season. So there was the, I'm going to, I'm going to sit out the national anthem in the preseason. I'm going to start kneeling. And then he was hurt. Mm-hmm. And so he had a few weeks on the injured list and he came back. Uh, it was probably six or seven weeks into the 2016 season. The first game was in Buffalo. So I went to that game because Buffalo was maybe from where I was living back then in the western suburbs of Toronto. It was less than a 90-minute drive. So I went to cover that game. And while I was driving around the stadium looking for parking, I saw Confederate flags. This is in suburban Buffalo, New York. Like, you cannot get any closer to Canada than Buffalo or Detroit. You can't get further from the Confederacy uh, unless you're in Maine. You know, but you can't get further than Buffalo. And here are these Confederate flags. And I promise you, guys, flying the Confederate flags in Buffalo, if you open a history book. Um, yeah. I who, hate to break it to you, but this is not the guys. You weren't on their side. Right. But here they were. Right. Um, it's almost as if the flag is not about heritage. It's almost that it is, it's, it's almost as if it's about hate, not heritage. Mm-hmm. I would even venture to say, uh, <laughs> it's like they have the logo backwards. It's the one, it's the one thing they can all agree on. But, um, so also. It's funny because you see people, and every now and then you'll see Canadians, like white Canadians flying that flag. And, um, <laughs> and they will tell you it's about their southern heritage. And here I am. I'm like, well, hey man, uh, my grandparents, like, I have two grandparents born in Arkansas. I have Southern heritage. We don't fly that flag. 
Yeah, I yeah, had a, you guys are in North Carolina. You guys fly the flag. You guys no. have Southern heritage, right? right. There's NASCAR races, and <laughs> I've I've never been to one. Me either. And sure. uh, NASCAR my, on the other side of town. I've never been to that racetrack. Yeah, my my <laughs> uncle uh, Charlotte's the headquarters of NASCAR, mm-hmm. but my uncle was he worked out there, and then he would be like, uh, he loves racing. He's like, you should come out there with me, mm-hmm. nephew. And I was like, are they still flying that flag? Yeah. And, he's, and he's like, well, they're not going to bother you. I was like, no, That's the flag true. bothers me. I am true. bothered. I'm, I'm, I'm man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm man enough to admit I'm bothered from the flag existing in my space. So I'm yeah. not going to attend the thing. And I, at the same time, uh, a couple of years back, I had a friend I played basketball with, white dude. And it was after, um, uh, Bree had taken down the flag in South Carolina from the state capitol. And there was this big thing like, oh my God, you know, the, you know, the, the white people were having a reckoning of like, well, the flag. And then I think Dylan Roof had killed some people. So mm-hmm. it was like, what the flag? Why is everyone so upset with the Confederate flag? It's like, <laughs> um, and so he was talking to me like, you know, it's more of a heritage thing, you know, from being from the South. I said, I'm from the South you know me your whole life you ain't never seen me around that flag why do you think that is and he was like well it's not a race thing you know it's just you know like family pride and stuff i was like listen i'm not gonna because you're my friend i'm not gonna cuss you out i'm gonna but because i'm black i'm not gonna necessarily educate you either because i didn't want to because i was like it's gonna take too much time and then right. you, you need to go through a process like there's a whole white process yes it is white yes. people have to go through you have to do that on your own time so instead i just was like listen go look up when the flag flew and then look up how long it didn't fly and mm. then look up the time that it came back. back the return just happened to be around the time of some things like the civil mm. rights movement so well, black lives matter yeah well not even mm. black lives matter civil rights movement that specifically was when this this shit didn't fly for like 65 years or whatever and then <laughs> and then black people was like hey we want freedom and they was like hold up hold up hold up let me go blow the dust off this let, thing let right me go get it's it. a grandpa's basement yeah the attic. let me go get the starch and iron it <laughs> and uh you know because he is a good dude he came back like i don't know man i didn't see that dude for like two or three months and it must have been on his mind bad because i forgot about the shit uh <laughs> you know i'm black and i'm down here so it's not right. it was a tuesday and uh he came in the gym man and he was so fucking apologetic man he was like man i didn't know i just feel so ignorant man you know that's not what i was taught i said dude none of us were taught any of this shit in school like i learned it too <laughs> like i didn't learn it in school i just knew it because i was black but I didn't see it in writing until I was a grown up. So, mm. you know, I think that's that's the thing. It's a unifying signal symbol and signal. That's exactly what it is, yeah. right? It's 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 a signal to racists no matter where they are on the map because I've seen that flag in Michigan, right? Africa, many- Af- they got it in Af- they have it in Germany. Places where you can't right. like we can't fly a swastika. Right. Yes. Let's pull this out. Yes, because it means the same thing. The re- the remix. Remix on this racism. Let's put it overseas. <laughs> um also uh Morgan, you know, uh as a sports writer, you know, um and soon to be published author. Uh soon <laughs> soon being a relative term. Exactly. Okay. This is, uh, so like what exactly is the process for you to get your like you know your book deal thing like how did like how did that go like what what was the this idea? particular book deal yeah okay so what had happened was uh back in december uh like i always 
I had been playing with the idea of writing a book, and people would say, hey, you should write a book, you should write a memoir. I just never had the time. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> when you work in the daily newspaper industry, one of the things that consumes a lot of your time and energy is like uh, the financial health of your company, mm. right? Every day looking at the stock ticker. Oh, shoot, we're down to um, 36 cents. That's not good. Right. Like, I could buy a significant percentage of the company, like with the change I have in my pocket. Um, and so, and you worry about these things. Um, and there, I, I, there were other things I knew I could do, but I also had this day job. Um, it was taking up most of my time and energy. And so, towards the end of like November, the company was like, "Hey, we want to buy people out." And I always told myself to, especially when you work at a place that just keeps you under the glass ceiling. Um, you know, and I would try to get promoted and like these managers always had some reason why it wasn't my time. So, oh, you're too young. You're too old. You're too this. You're too that. You're not this enough. Other people need. There's always some reason why I couldn't advance, right? This kept me on this treadmill. And so, and I always told myself, every time they offer a buyout, I'm going to go ask HR to run my numbers. Mm-hmm. And once I get to like a year's salary, I'm leaving. Either they, Unless they promote me. So whichever comes first, the year's buyout or the promotion. And so like five years later, five buyouts later, you get to this year, uh, they offer the buyouts, they run the number, and like 53 weeks ago, I'm gone. What was nice if I had to ask my wife? And she's like, yeah, leave. Mm-hmm. She's like, we still get the benefits for a year, right? I'm like, yeah. So you can still, you know, go get, uh, go get massaged, go pay for it. She's like, perfect, go. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I took the buyout. Um, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but having, you know, an idea. And the thing was, I figured I could free, like, for, cause the money's just coming in and I could just freelance for a while. Um, even though freelancing is really precarious. Um, but just do just enough to like push back my, I guess I need a new nine to five date. Right. Um, you know, so when you, and anytime someone leaves a job in journalism, you do this Twitter thread about you're leaving and here's what you want to do and thanks for the blah, blah, blah. And so, I mentioned in this thread that I'm, you know, that I've been just tinkering with a book idea. And so the head of publicity from Penguin Random House Canada just jumps into my DMs like, hey, you want to write about it? We should meet. They're huge. So I'm like, okay, cool. Let's meet. And so, and the thing about him is his Twitter avatar is like a gorilla. So I didn't recognize his face. Mm. Um, By the way, just as an aside. It's amazing how many people that are super influential and slash like powerful in different industries don't really have much of a social media presence in that type of way. Yes. Well, you really be like, this nigga got 150 followers, CEO of Random House. I guess. (laughs) I guess I'll meet with a dog avatar. I guess. (laughs) Like it, but it, but it happens all the time. I get followed by people and it'd be like, you know, uh, head of uh right. diversity inclusion yes. at hbo i'm just like i guess i'll follow him back right well so here's the thing so when i went and met with him and i saw his face i was like oh wait i knew this guy we used to work out at the same gym mm. it was a small gym so like the gym was like a community we all knew each other so i was like okay that's why he, the guy was just like emailing me like he knew me oh. but now it may he wasn't just super presumptuous like we actually did know each other i just you know, all I'm seeing is a gorilla avatar. Right. So like, and so, you know, I tell him my concept. 
was like, have you ever read a book by called Boy Wonders by Cahal Kelly? It's like a, a memoir, but it's in essays of a, a writer, really good writer. Uh, he's a columnist at the Global Mail in Toronto. He used to work with me at the Star. Um, and he's like, yeah. He's like, do I know that book? I commissioned it. It's like, okay, perfect. I was like, have you ever heard of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young? He's like, yeah. I was like, well, so think of something that kind of splits the difference between those two books. That's what I want to write. And so he's like, perfect. Can you get me a proposal uh, in a month? I'm like, sure. So uh, that was like middle of February. Wow. And then uh, I scrambled. The thing is, like, when you have a baby in the house, right. no matter how much time you think you have, you don't really have, right? Right. So, like, these days I'm, I, I have, like, uh, morning news anchor hours. Like, I'm, I go to bed by, like, 8.30. I'm up at 3 in the morning. <laughs> Right. Because your time to work is from 3 a.m. to when the baby wakes up. You think you're going to get more work done after the baby wakes up, but you're not. You're going to mm. chase a baby all day. That's it. But, um, yeah, so I, 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 I got the proposal together. I sent it to him in the middle of March, and that's just when the pandemic was um, really starting to hit. Mm. And so, and then I just forgot about it. Because the thing is, like, the other thing I'm doing with CBC, like, that deal took, like, months and months and months and months. And we're still, with CBC, talking about a podcast. We're finally going to do it. We started talking about it two years ago. Right. So I'm just thinking this stuff is going to take, I'm, whatever. I literally forgot about it. Mm. And then, uh, you know, two weeks later, he's like, I love the proposal. Uh, I'm sorry this is taking so long. For me, for him to email me back in two weeks, I thought this thing was happening really fast. Right. He's over here apologizing. For this stuff taking so long, and then every two weeks he'd update me. He's like, I showed it to some new people; they liked it. Showed it to some other people; they liked it. So at a certain point, I'm like, Hey, man, do I need an agent right now or not? He's like, Yeah, you should probably call an agent. And I'm like, Well, who would you recommend? He's like, Martha Webb. We work with her all the time because this the industry is. Yeah. Everyone who succeeds in the industry, like, it's not because someone greased the path for you. But the industry is very incestuous. So, like, the agency and the publisher, like, they are literally in the same building. But Martha Webb is a really good agent because I called a couple of people who uh, she's worked with. And so I sent it to the sent the proposal to the agent. She liked it. And then from there, uh, it's just a matter of uh, doing the contract. Like, they make the preliminary offer, and they offer you the advance. The advance I describe as book industry generous. Mm. But like, it's not a lot of money, right? Right? It's not a lot of money. Like, if you think you're gonna write a book and that's gonna be your job and you keep it, keep it you're not, right? Because the the sum total of the advance is divided by four. So you get a check when you sign. You get a check when you hand in the manuscript. You get a check when the book hits the stores. You get a check a year oh, later. Oh, okay. And my agent said, "Do you want to front load?" This advance, I was like, hell no, I want the four checks because I want that check a year after we publish because right. it'll feel like royalties. Right. Whether if I sell two <laughs> copies, I still get the check, it feels like royalties. Right? So take so a pic, take a picture of the check, put it up on your Twitter. You got, yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel you. It, Frame that's it like, I don't blame you. You have to save that for the mild flex that it can be in a year. Like, you know, even if the book goes double wood, you be like, uh, still getting book money over here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. but, but you know, y'all carry on with y'all, y'all days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so from there, like, it helps that I had a good agent. It helps that she had a good relationship with the publisher. Um, but from there, <laughs> it's just a lot of like hurry up and wait. Right. So they're like, uh, hey, so this is probably the beginning of June. They're like, we'll have the contract done by probably the beginning of July. Mm. 
nothing. You don't hear anything. And then one day they pop up like, hey, can we put pictures in your memoir? We want to have eight pages of pictures. And I'm like, no. And then they're like, okay, cool. And then you just don't hear from them for three weeks. And then like literally uh, last week, Thursday, they're just like, hey, here's the contract, sign it. Like after weeks and weeks and weeks of hearing nothing, they're like, here's the final contract, sign it. And then there it went. And then like the, the, the announcement went official, I guess, yesterday. But that literally, that was the process for me. But it did, it, it, the things that helped me, like I'm not famous, but I write. And so, like the book people, they still follow like the local news media industry. So they get to know who the good writers are and all this. Um, and so that really helped me. Um, the fact that I worked out at the gym with the guy didn't hurt, but at the same time, like I, I could have taken with this agent that same proposal to any other publishing house and got published. Right. Uh, but it was the fact that I was like a, a veteran because the thing they want to know about in the proposal too is like uh, what kind of platform you have, where does the book fit into the marketplace? How can you help us sell your book? Mm. So I was able to tell them all that only because you know I've been around social media and I've seen this thing unfold uh, in other ways for other people. So, and then you got like you know the white guilt wave, man. You got to ride that shit. So like you know that's <laughs> probably that's probably why they was like not talking for a while. They was like throw this shit in the trash. We just and then it was like <laughs> and then it was like oh wait they burning down buildings. Uh, call no, get more than back. It's, it's the other way. Like I, <laughs> if I was pitching this book now, right, I could probably wrangle a bigger advance from people. Oh yeah, wave, right. And this is the thing. Like yeah, everything has happened. With, this happened for me like in the last month or so people think it's all happened overnight and like, right. oh, this is all stuff we've been talking about since like so like if you had to December. do the if you had to do the proposal now you could be like it's like the fire next time meets uh, <laughs> yeah, we were exactly. eight years in power yes. with, with a little with bit a, of entanglement yeah yes. the, uh, <laughs> a little bit of entanglement the exactly. autobiography of malcolm x you know think right. that you know what i'm saying yes. Uh, nah, that's, but that's dope though, man. You know, I like to think that, uh, we are very good purveyors of talent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, yes, absolutely. The blackout tills bump. It might not move fast, okay? It might take a few years, but eventually all our people seem to be doing well, man. Come on. I love to see it. Um, also writing for sports, man. Um, one, in the time of coronavirus, how has that changed? Because sports kind of stopped. But the stories didn't necessarily start stop. Yeah. It's, just, it's like it's like the the thing that white people always lie about and say like just stick to sports. We only want to talk about sports. <laughs> this completely blew like it completely pulled the rug from under that lie yes. that myth because it's like there is no sports for the most part until very recently. But sports journalism still yeah, has to happen. On. Your site still needs traffic. Your uh the athletes are still human beings. They're gonna talk about things that are happening in society now. It can't there are no stats to report. There are no games to 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 write about. So it's almost like in a weird way, the lie that they said about Kaepernick and the <laughs> and, and Jamel Hill and all it's like they have to f- confront it now. There's no choice you you have to be able to write about these things so has that changed the landscape or is there still like a resistance even without sports to be like hey can you leave the race out of this shit so even even let's say george floyd never happened and this current reckoning on race in the sports media never happened you'd still have the pandemic right and the thing is like you can't write about any of these sports outside the context of the pandemic you can't discuss the pandemic outside the context of politics. Like, you should be able to, but every uh, 
every step technique program in place or that should be in place to mitigate and contain this pandemic has become politicized. So you cannot separate all these things. Like the challenge is finding people who are, who can speak intelligently like across these topics. And so uh, like right now I would see a better Marlins coronavirus story on MSNBC than I would from these baseball writers that are only trained to think about these things in terms of baseball. Right. Baseball guys are like, well, like there was a baseball writer who had a tweet the other day that's uh, only one person from the Phillies tested positive and he was a clubhouse attendant and not a player. So that's great news. <laughs> like, I guess if you're the, unless you're the guy or his family. Yeah, right, and they right? actually interact with each other. I hope they know that and they don't just right. stay over in the corner. <laughs> Yeah, you know clubhouse does. He touches your shoes. He puts right. stuff in your locker. He's breathing on your stuff. You walk by, you say hi to him. Um, plus the fact that like there's a incubation period for the virus. So if I test positive, sorry, if I test negative today, it doesn't mean I won't test negative. Or I won't test positive later. Mm-hmm. Take the time for the virus to show up. Or there are like the uh, Andrew Brandt, I think his name was, is an NFL Network guy, and so he was complaining about sports media people and people who cover the NFL hoping that the NFL doesn't play. Right. Like, you guys make your living from this. I don't get it. I'm like, what is there not to get about wanting people not to get sick? Um, also, also, the virus yeah. the virus is not the home team in the fourth quarter <laughs> down by 10 points. It doesn't matter if you're rooting for it or not. It doesn't give, like, it, it's not like coronavirus is like, oh, they want us to win? I'm going to go infect some people. Mm, coronavirus it does not like, care what we think. I take out it everybody. It does not care about a schedule. Yeah. yeah. Home, away, yeah. visitor, yeah. I don't care. It's like the movie The Terminator, the first one, where it's like, when Reese is describing it, and he's just like, it doesn't have any feelings. It doesn't have, like, yes, that's the virus. It doesn't, it's a robot. It, it doesn't don't have a, a heart. It don't care. It, you can either be smart and not and try not to die, make it at least hard for it to kill you, or you can run headlong into like diving into like coronavirus. <laughs> so uh, the analogy I use is uh, like the sports industry treats this pandemic like the Golden State Warriors treated Kevin Durant's Achilles tendon. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Right. So here's this guy. He's clearly injured, right? Every time he tries to do something, he hurts himself again. But they're just looking at the calendar. They're like, well, it's the NBA Finals. I guess he'll be fine. <laughs> has he shown that he'll be fine? No, but, like, it's a big game. He'll be fine. Why I mean, wouldn't he be fine? It's a big game. What? His leg knows. His leg will stay in one piece because the leg knows. <laughs> the Achilles tendon. Game. Get out there and play. The Achilles and then his tendon snaps. And everyone, everyone is surprised that this happened. Right. Steve Kerr, who's been an athlete and the coach his whole life, has said, well, in this news conference saying, well, he had a calf strain. I didn't think that would compromise his Achilles tendon. Like, what tendon does your calf muscle attach to, genius? <laughs> right. Jeez. Yeah, and Steve Kerr is the coach that we think is smart. Right. Yeah, true. Right? He's right behind Popovich. So this, yes. And so this is us and the virus, right? Well, it's July. Time for NFL training camps to start. I know there's more cases now than there were two weeks ago, but this thing will back off because it cares about football. This thing will, fighters don't care about football. They they just have not there breathing on each other. Why don't we just do tackle right. football where they just all pile on top of each other and right. breathe in a big ass huddle? Let's go ahead and do yes. that. So six weeks from now, we're going to have all these other outbreaks and everyone's yep. going to be acting surprised that this happened. This is the other thing, uh, sports fans don't get, like the sports fans who think we have to play through this. Right. Because it's like, like that next man up mentality is very pervasive, right? Mm-hmm. You're hurt, give me the next guy. You're hurt, give me the next guy. Cool. 
But you can't really. There's only so many next men when you're talking about elite athletes, right? Right, because once you get to the fourth next man up, you're talking about minor leaguers. You get to the fifth or sixth next man up, you're you know you're into like better than regular people, but mediocre right. by pro standards players. So if your concern is for the, if you even if your only concern is for the quality of the product on the field, right, you got to understand that it's time to step back because right. I promise the 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 people who will be available to play major league baseball and NFL football. Six weeks from now, after this virus tears through all these teams, are not people that you're going to want to pay to see, or mm-hmm. not people that you're going to want to watch your Saturday afternoon. Uh, watch that you're going to want to spend your Saturday afternoon watching mm-hmm. on television. These are just going to be dudes. Do you know what they're going to be? <laughs> Student athletes, and that's why that's, <laughs> that's why true. they need to be at home too. They, at least the professionals get paid. You want me to take my right. black ass out there for free? No. Yes. Yeah, no money. Old. No money. No union. Right, and the thing is, I think it's so weird because sports is the opiate of the masses. You know, it's like this. Uh, I like per like that's the thing. I love quote unquote sports, but I really just like the stuff around sports. Right, I like mm-hmm. the gossip. I like seeing black people get rich. Um, <laughs> you know, like the cultural shit. You know, yes, yes. Um, but like I'm not. I'm not so committed to this idea of like the game, the game, because it's not that important. I feel like mm-hmm. sports is just this big ass distraction mm-hmm. for us to funnel our like murderous rage <laughs> and bu- and bloodlust and all the shit that they used to get out in the gladiator pits. It's just yeah. that until we die. Like it's like no one wants to think. You know what? You're dying. Every breath you're taking, you're getting closer <laughs> to not existing. That's true. You won't be here one day. But Michael Jordan is really good at shooting the basketball in this thing and we should give him millions of dollars because every time he plays for two and a half hours we're not thinking about dying anymore we're not thinking about failing marriages and fucking uh <laughs> the abuse that we experience and all this shit right we're not thinking about race we that's all this shit is so there's a pandemic that's coming to kill everybody and the one way to stop it is for people not gathering and not doing shit right and people are so addicted to this fucking like distraction that they're like nah we want to fill arenas we want players to be like uh, they're like risking their lives we want to sit on our couches if we're going to be stuck in the house and watch them risk their lives other and that which is by the way which is fine except we handled this the wrong way the entire fucking time so yes like there's places where they're playing if you put it on espn today you'll see people playing soccer somewhere it ain't exactly like it used to be but they did the things. We don't even want to do the things. We're just like, let these niggas die in the NFL so we can put something on TV. They're going to be out there like them Futurama robots playing football. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, yeah, like I watch uh, because I keep these weird hours now. Like I wind up seeing KBO baseball and like mm. uh, rugby from New Zealand and, and Australia. Like I see it live now because I, I wake up at three. Hey, this is the New Zealand Warriors against the um, Melbourne Storm. Perfect. But uh, the other thing American sports remind me of are uh, so we watch, everybody watched the Last Dance, right? Mm-hmm. And we read the Jordan rules. Yeah. Oh, well, I read some of it. I haven't finished it. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, we read the Jordan rules yeah. this 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 spring, and Cliff Levinson from the Bulls, mm-hmm. right? He was like this uh, probably seventh man. You know, you come in, get you some rebounds, stuff like that. But he, he came to the Bulls in debt. He had to get a $200,000 advance on his salary because he left Atlanta, had all this debt. How did 
Cliff Levinson, why did I put this deck? Cliff Levinson used to hang out with Dominique Wilkins. Mm-hmm. Okay? Dominique Wilkins was NBA rich. Like for, you know, NBA players didn't make then what they make now, but whatever is the most an NBA player can make back in those days, Dominique Wilkins was making. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's making in the millions, probably high seven figures, close to eight, whatever they could pay him. And here's Cliff Levinson making probably 750, right? But Chris Levinson thinks he and Dominique Wilkins are peers. So Dominique buys a Benz, Cliff Levinson buys a Benz. Dominique buys another one, Cliff Levinson buys another one. Dominique says, I don't feel like any driving any of these luxury cars to the game today. I'm going to take a limo. Cliff Levinson says, I'm going to do the same thing. Now, Dominique can afford that. Cliff Levinson can't. So Dominique does all this stuff, and he does not miss the money. Cliff Levinson winds up in debt begging his next team to uh, give him an advance so he can just you know keep the doors open on his house. So the U.S. is like Cliff Levinson. U.S. sports industry is Cliff Levinson in New Zealand and Korea. They're Dominique. Right. They can afford to do all this in New Zealand, Australia, uh, Korea, because they did the work on the front end. Here's right, right. the U.S. doing next to nothing to control the pandemic, but they want New Zealand perks. They want mm-hmm. Australia perks. They want Taiwan perks. It don't work that way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, and it doesn't matter how much like you try to force it to work that way. Right. Because the other thing it exposes is just like the callousness. Not just of the ownership class, but of the fan base. Yes. Yes. Who treat these pro athletes. And the thing is, every group of people I'm about to enumerate deserves dignity and safe working conditions. Right. Um, regardless of what is convenient for the consumer. But the same people that say, that know that there's a, a, a coronavirus outbreak at the meatpacking plant, but don't shut down the meatpacking plant. Don't slow down production. Don't give these people time off. You know why? Because I want cheap steak. Right. I don't care if I can still get the steak. I'm not, I don't want to, I want it cheap. Right. <laughs> right. So the NFL, listen, don't shut it down. Let these guys get sick. They'll recover, but I want my football. And I'm not even paying anything but attention. I'm, I'm, right. I'm bootlegging the cable. I got IPTV. Right. And I'm just paying attention. That's the only thing I'm paying, but I want it. Yep. I want it. And I don't care if you get hurt, give me what I want. Which is callous and privileged um and inhumane, but this is where we are. I do wonder what happens. Like, does someone have to die? You know? Like does a coach get sick and die? Does a player have to be like have a debilitating uh time with it or something like that? Because I I do wonder if that's the thing that makes but, everyone back off because right. this because I can't imagine this going well. And I can't, I don't, you know, I can't, but at the same time, I can't imagine them not trying to power through. The Marlins just had 17 people test positive and this, and they're like, okay, we won't play until Monday. Like, what the fuck is that? Where are you going to get 17 people? Yeah. Major league level. Right? Yeah. Cause even like, listen, under the best of circumstances, when minor league baseball is active and you got triple A, double A, high A, low A rookie ball, you lose 17 people at once. You're not going to find 17 people from amongst your minor league teams who can step in and play. Right. So now these guys with the minor league teams shut down think they're just going to find 17 people who are major league ready on two days notice and who can also pass the coronavirus test. It's not going to happen. Um, but the thing is, this person, like, whoever, if, like if, if someone lose, dies, they would have to literally die on the field. Well, if I you lose, going, yeah. if you lose 17 people, that's, they make movies, they, they made We Are Marshall about a team losing 17 people. Yeah. People, this, these motherfuckers have 17 people out and they're just like, mm, give them another week. 
and then we think we can make we can make it work and you know what it's one of those things where it's like they know snap his fingers and half of the population in america got coronavirus right and the other half we just trying to deal with the aftermath of all these people dying it's like this doesn't make sense because piggyback piggybacking on what you were saying i feel as though like i said it's cruel and it's callous to say you want sports but yet you won't leave your house most people work from home so right. if you li- yes. so me in my office space i don't want to go in right i don't want to deal with people around me but you, the person that entertains me, need to go to your working environment. Your, your working and environment. It, but, but you I, know what? They me, feel no. that they feel that way about everyone. They feel that way about yes. the grocery store worker. They feel that way about uh, shit. They feel that way about the politicians. They feel that way about you know the people that work at Amazon. They the the entitlement and convenience of like come to me is what all these people are living in right yes, now and then when you throw in the racial element that a lot of these people making all this money right. as athletes are black you know they don't care about these motherfuckers like no no <laughs> and that that tells you they think of these black athletes exactly the same way they think of a lot of these latino and latina uh mm-hmm. yes. farm workers yes. right yes Just get out here work yourself to death yeah i know it's dangerous but you you this is what you signed up for when you came here yeah what I, what i want what i want is oranges for 69 cents a pound so get out here and miss yes. your life and take off that black lives matter stuff <laughs> and get it away from my basketball court like i know that's right. what they thinking man like that's the uh, it does seem like of the people that are you know trying to play sports the nba has the most like at least thought out plan so far yeah we're going to control it as much as we possibly can we know the rate won't be zero right but we telling you one thing once your ass is in this bubble you are motherfucking in the bubble well you can leave but there's like a precautions to get back in like lou williams left uh they made a big deal he he went to get some wings to get some uh at the strip club and it was like (laughs) at the strip club and and it was like when he gets back he has to be quarantined for 10 days and miss two games it's like that actually everyone has to do that anyone who leaves the bubble has to be quarantined for 10 days and right if you miss games you miss games so that's not this punishment or whatever it's Mm -hmm. just the protocol but like they seem to have thought this out and and honestly they were in a better position their their season was already underway they had they could mostly isolate it down to just like these teams have a chance of being in the postseason and and playing more um we can we uh unlike the nfl and probably baseball too you can reuse the same like arena over and over and over again as opposed to you know football you can't play no fucking back-to-back games no. on the field Same field yeah so like no. like these other sports really need to consider hey. that they just can't do it i think if i'm not mistaken in the mlb uh didn't toronto didn't they just have to leave canada yes. like like they don't yeah. they can't play so, games yeah they had so they had training camp here in toronto um but in terms of having a, a season yeah the federal government the provincial government which is run by doug ford the crack smoking mayor's brother the the, uh, Donald Trump wannabe, uh, they said, yeah, you guys can play. But then the federal government oh, said, no, my. but we control the border. Yes. We already have this rule. We, we don't let people into Canada. So we can't have all these teams full of people just flying in and out of here. Right. If, if you, if you, if you come to Canada, if we let you in, you still have to sit around for two weeks under quarantine. Mm-hmm. Right. Which doesn't work with the Major League Baseball schedule. And so, yeah, the the Jays, the Blue Jays had to like 
there's a point where they're going to go to Pittsburgh. There's a point they're going to go to Baltimore because they didn't want to play in Buffalo. That's where their farm team is. But Buffalo is kind of a minor, it's a minor league ballpark. But mm. Buffalo is where uh, they're stuck. But uh, like that decision was lightly politicized around here. But mm. even again, even most conservative leaning Canadians understand that. Um, there's science, right? You know, and the, the 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 federal government isn't making this decision to punish the Blue Jays or to punish mm-hmm. baseball. It's just the fact that here, especially around Toronto, um, you know, it wasn't as bad as New York, but by Canadian standards, the peak of the pandemic uh, was bad enough, and they've finally gotten this thing under control. You know, they're down to like five new cases a day in Toronto, and Toronto has five million people, which so you know, and 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 so. Once you've made that kind of progress, like why would you undo it by letting seventeen uh, COVID positive Florida Marlins show up right, in your city right. and start coughing on stuff? Karen, what you gonna make sense? Were you gonna say something? Uh, yeah, and I agree. And like you say, once they get there, they're gonna want to move around. They're gonna want to go out. They're gonna yes. Go to so, so it's not like they get there and they stay in that location. And that's no. the problem. You can't control. They don't been through the airport. They don't. Flight attendants, like so, they're coming in contact yep. with all yeah. these people there. You know the the people that clean the room, the the hotel people. So these are a lot of people that they're coming in contact with. So this one person can end up affecting a lot of other people. And right. think about that stuffy air on an airplane, right? Uh, keeps getting recycled, right? And yeah. people get sick on airplanes before the all pandemic. The like it's like a, a running thing. It's like you get on an airplane, you probably gonna get sick. Like. Get yeah. a little cold. I was on the airplane, and now it's like y'all want to play with Dorona. What do you Not think about? Um, what do you think about this? Uh, Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr. Uh, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Bucket list fight. What do you think about this? Are <laughs> they even in the same weight class? I'm confused. I don't think. No, they they're old, and it's an exhibition. Oh, okay. And so now, if this was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Even but even twenty years ago, Tyson was like in decline. He's not the right. Tyson that people think Tyson think of when they think of Mike Tyson. I think they keep um, seeing these Instagram videos, and I think they keep thinking, "Man, he would beat the shit up out of me." But he's not gonna be fighting you. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Like, like that's the, exactly. It's this weird thing that happens with Mike Tyson where people like it's like we forget every fight he lost. We forget like the yes. times that he like talked a whole bunch of shit leading up to the fight, and he's like, "I want to kill you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mm-hmm. eat your children." Word to Allah and shit. We be like, "Oh my god, he's gonna, he gonna murder this nigga." And then he get in the ring and he be like, "I already got my check, man. All right." Uh. <laughs> Here's the thing about Mike Tyson, like. What you describe, like that's because it's a cycle. Yeah, has been going on literally since June of 1988. Thirty-two years. Mike Tyson peaked in June of 1988 when he beat Michael Spinks. That was the best Mike Tyson you're ever going to see. Yeah. Every time Mike Tyson goes away, he comes back. He's worse. Yes, every so time. He went away, so he beat up Michael Spinks. Then there was the divorce and the car crash. He came back. He fought Frank, Frank Bruno. He beat Frank Bruno, but he wasn't as good. Right. And that's when people started being able to touch Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mike Tyson had always been so good at selling the idea that he's indestructible that people just are willing to overlook that. So eventually he loses to Buster Douglas, comes back, builds himself up. But even the last two fights he had before he went to prison mm-hmm. against Razor Ruddock, who was from Toronto, 
Like, those are brutal fights. And, like, Mike Tyson, give him credit. Like, he had a chin back then, but he yeah. was getting touched. Like, his, these fights against elite heavyweights, they're competitive. He wasn't steamrolling people. Then he goes to jail, but the thing about when he went to prison was, like, that allowed um, the myth-making to fill the void yes. of what he actually had to offer. So he comes out of prison. He is significantly diminished. Mm-hmm. But the aura is reestablished. The idea is reestablished. So here's the idea of Mike Tyson steamrolling, like, all these over overmatched uh, opponents, and they put him in with Evander Holyfield, and Evander Holyfield was the first guy that Tyson faced post-prison that wasn't scared of Tyson. Right. And so he kicked Tyson's ass two times. But again, we're talking about stuff that happened 25 years ago. Right. But Tyson puts out an Instagram video and suddenly people think he can beat like current heavyweights. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what this what this fight is about is basically promoting like this new social, this new app, Triller. It's supposed to be like the next TikTok. I was writing about this uh, for CBC the other day. Like, there are so many um, next, so many apps that are supposed to be a better, the next version of something that people already have mm-hmm. that come and go. Like Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather had one called Shots. Shots is supposed to be the next Instagram. Who has Shots on their phone? Any of y'all got Shots on your phone? No. Um, there's one called Sue. It's supposed to be the next Twitter, and you would get paid. Like the users would get paid some of the ad money. Who, had, who has Sue on their phone? Nobody. So I don't know that this fight is going to make Triller into the next TikTok because there already is a TikTok. Right. Um, what we do know is it's like it's it's dangerous one to do this during a pandemic. You got two old guys fighting. Good chance, even though it's an exhibition, it's a good chance somebody got to go to the hospital. And the hospitals are full of COVID patients. Right. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like the brain is a delicate instrument, man. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've learned, and I've learned like covering boxing and talking to neurologists is that you know, the older you get, the less trauma your brain can absorb. And a lot of these traumatic brain injuries have come with fighters who are close to 40, in their 40s. Like you cannot, your brain can't absorb it. So here comes Roy Jones, who has been on the receiving end of some of the most gruesome knockouts in recent memory. Right. Um, but, the, but he's not the only vulnerable one here because Mike Tyson is an old man too. Yes. So he's he's in great shape for a 54-year-old and I give him all kinds of credit. Um, but if they're not using like like the big uh, celebrity boxing gloves yeah, and like football helmets or something like it doesn't take a lot to seriously injure especially once that 54-year-old and that 51-year-old starts getting tired. Like it doesn't take a ton. And so that is my concern. And I just don't understand, too, like, we as a sports public, um, anytime a boxer fights too long, you say, that guy fought too long. Right. And then when a guy retires young, we say, well, why did you retire? Why don't you keep coming back? Right. Keep fighting. Fight right. this guy. Fight that guy. Move up in weight class. Fight that guy. Right. So as much as people, like, Mayweather fought well past his stale date. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came back. He was 40 because it was, it was easy money to beat up on Conor McGregor. But, like, we're still talking about when Floyd going to come back. And and it's not like we say He's, that. and It's not even like the fans say that out yes. of some deep abiding respect. Like, they, no. Mayweather fought past the expiration date, still never got beat. And they still be like, this nigga ain't shit, man. You know what? The next dude can whoop yes. his ass. Like, when they got to Conor McGregor, <laughs> I was like, man, get the fuck out of my face, dude. It's no one he can beat. That y'all will finally admit, okay, man, there's nobody left. Like, but the, but the uh, thing is, if Mayweather goes out and loses to some younger, bigger, faster guy, then it's well, he should have retired. He, 
Why did you keep fighting, dude? You were 43. You had all this money in the bank. You had no reason to keep fighting. Get the fuck and out so, of here. Oh, like, man. boxers cannot win in this situation. But what we have is Mike Tyson has profile and has this ability to make people think it's still 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they'll get people. They'll do some pay-per-view sale. Now, whether or not those turn into, like, hardcore thriller users, mm-hmm. probably not. But they'll do some pay-per-view sales just, just on the strength of Mike Tyson's name. And we'll all forget that, like, his last competitive fight he lost to a dude named Kevin McBride who no one heard of before yeah. no one's heard of since yep that, that's the thing that they say uh, well I think Roy Jones Jr. said it best y'all must have forgot cause yeah. literally we have decades of why this fight is not gonna be one to pay any money to see Yo, and people gonna do it now, now in 2000 I would have been really entertained of course watching, of course. watching like Eight pack abs, Roy Jones. Super fast, untouchable, Roy Jones. Beat up on Mike Tyson because that's right. exactly what happened. Right, I was gonna say, yes, Mike would have still been way past his prime, but yeah, yeah, yeah Roy, I mean, Roy would have been a beast. Yes, but like twenty years later, because Roy can barely train, he has bad knees, he can't run. Um, and like Roy, when he fights, they always use these old, uh, these old photos for his poster. Mm-hmm. So they use like. 30 year old Roy with the abs instead of like current Roy with like the, the punch. Right. Um, but I also feel yeah, like, I also feel like once you make it into announcing the fight, like you do the analysis of the fight, yes. on the, you don't get to fight anymore. You know no. what I mean? Like that's you got, that's you got like that office chair back, like me. Like in fo- yes. in football, that's like if uh, Tony Romo goes, "Oh, you know what? I am going to be quarterback again." No, 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 no. You moved well, Jason on. Jason did that. Yeah, like th- you shouldn't get nice. to do that. You like no, you you did the thing. You now talk about how to do the thing. You know what I mean? Yes. You don't you don't go back to do the thing, dude. That's it's insane. Yeah, and when, and but the reality is like boxers come back. Usually just because they need the money, not because they would want more. Again, right. Mayweather was a special case. And they say to you, hey, look, here's a hundred, here's a hundred million dollar guarantee to fight this MMA dude. Of course you're going to take that money. That's why for that fight, he came to the ring in a uh, ski mask because he knew he was robbing everyone. But like for the most part, it's because you need money, not because you want more. So like Tyson, Jones, we could probably use the payday. But again, for as much of a failed state as Venezuela is, and every although the United States like every day looks more and more like the Venezuela that everyone I know from Venezuela here left. Yeah, right. But the one thing they do right in Venezuela is that you are not allowed to box past age forty. Once you turn forty, you turn in your license. That's it. You're done. Right. Because the science says once you get past forty, you're in a lot more danger when you get hit in the head. I um, bet that leads to a lot. I, I wish- bet. I bet that leads to a lot less ducking fights too. Cause then you, you really ain't got, it's like, well, you're going to be ducking all the fights at 40. So if you got a yes, motherfucker on yes. your list, you got somebody on your list, you want to, you want to get right with, you <laughs> might want to do it now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh but. man. So, uh, what, like, what is married life and all this stuff been like in the pandemic with the child, you know, and like, you know, being in the house or, you know, are you, are you, are you feeling uh, claustrophobic? Are you feeling grateful? Like, what are you feeling? All of the above. So, like, I'm I'm happy that I, you know we've been able to spend more time with the baby. Um, except the baby now is kind of spoiled because before the pandemic, the baby got used to people like leaving the house to go to work. Mm. So she didn't she didn't trip when you left because she's like, this is just what people do. People just come and go all day as long as there's at least one person here to entertain me. I'm good. Yeah, I'm cool. 
But now she's like, I'm used to multiple people in the house to entertain me. So I don't like when any of you leave because you are <laughs> listen. I need you to put on the wiggles. I need you to show me how they dance. Oh, listen, I need you to chase. Her new thing is like a chase. She likes to run around Aww. like a, a little loop. Well, so that, like, make, that makes sense, though. Growing up yes. in that household, I feel like that's just part of the training. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it, it is different. Like I said, I find I have, like, less time during the pandemic than before, only mm-hmm. because, like, when no one has a schedule, all this time that you think is time is actually no time, just because there's no schedule. There's no way to mark time. Right. Because right. <laughs> every day is the same. It's like, oh, I'll leave that for the weekend. Well, because when the weekend comes, I'll put it off too because I can do it Monday. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to put it off on Monday because why not? No one, no one has days of the week anymore. Um, <laughs> right. They all really start to blend together. Like work from home. Yeah. Sometimes I wake up, I literally don't remember what day of the week it is. Yeah. It's all right. purgatory at this point. Yeah. I thought today was Monday. No. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> But then, um, also like, you know, with the, the track running tradition and stuff, are you preparing the child to, you know, to hit the blocks, you know, to get out here and follow in the footsteps? Or is that like not a pressure you want to put on the kid? Well, it ain't my pressure because I ain't the world champ. That's my wife. Mm. Right? So, <laughs> Whatever. So she played a little college ball. She feeling the pressure. <laughs> She's like, you need to hurry up and do this. No, nah, well, here's the thing. Um, my wife, like, she did really well financially in track and field, but she also knows how rare it is to do well financially in track and field. So she's not going to push our daughter, mm-hmm. like, against our daughter's will into a sport that, like, for most people, even really good people, doesn't really pay. True. Um, like, like, if you really, really love it, that's one thing. Like, listen, I'm not going to play Richard Williams yeah you know, for you so you can just get out on the circuit and run for a few hundred dollars here and and, and, and also circuit. like that environment is a little bit brutal right for a kid like like the people that do like i watched uh the documentary athlete a it's on uh netflix it's about the um the women's gymnastic team and okay. the, the sexual abuse scandal that happened and you know obviously the sexual abuse scandal is a huge part of all this stuff but before you even get to that like a big part of the documentary was just like you have to set up an environment that allows a imbalance of power and promotes a kind of an abusive like you you know i get to yell at you if you didn't do a good job i get to like tell you you're you're ugly and you're fat and you can't and you oh you put on three pounds i get to do that i get to take your parents and say they can't they aren't allowed to come to our camp because they may intervene with my coaching and so it does you know i wonder also for your wife if she's like well having been through that extreme level of competitiveness i would i wouldn't necessarily want to thrust my child into this unless they unless it was something a child wanted to go through yeah also like what you described is not healthy but a lot of coaches uh substitute intensity for skill yeah and they make you think that you have to mistreat people to make them successful. Right. Just because that's the only way they know how to do it. Right. Um, like, like for our daughter, so let's say she turns out to be a good athlete. Like, you know, chances are because of who her parents are, she'll have talent. Right. But the talent is a big leg up. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, you can avoid a lot of the crap. When you have talent, because talent's a thing you can't teach. True. You can't buy. Right? 
And so, like, when I look at the landscape, I see, I see a lot of parents spending a fortune on their kids, trying to give their kids talent. Mm-hmm. You can't give somebody talent. You, know, you can improve people. And you see these coaches that say, you got to improve your kids' athletic ability. Send them to me. Listen, ability, you're born with. That's, listen, if your kid don't have ability, they made a poor choice of parents. Right. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I used, I used to play ball with uh Steph Curry when he was uh in high school and uh right. first year at Davidson and um uh, like he was good but he was really short, you know, um and then uh he hit like a little growth spurt and it was like, "Oh, his That's why you the professional. His, his daddy Daryl Curry. Yeah. Yeah, his daddy Daryl Curry. Like it was it was so obvious like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you can't teach that." Like that that's that's i mean not that he didn't practice and all that shit he's like but just like there's some top flight athleticism shit happening with him that that no one can do right and like the people that are really 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 good like the elites the professionals the top professionals they have a lot of what you can teach and a lot of what you can't teach right it's not a matter of either or and it's like and this kind of breaks down around along racial lines because like in general you see a lot of black people with this talent. You see a lot of white people who don't have the same level of talent. So this mm-hmm. prioritize hard work and dedication and all this stuff. Cool. And they act as if these things are mutually exclusive and as if the person who has talent necessarily doesn't have the hard work. Right. Um, but once you get past a certain level, you get to the Olympics, you get to the NBA, especially the top of the NBA, everybody has a lot of both. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, with our daughter, whatever. Like, I tell them what I tell any kid. These, Try a bunch of sports when you're young. See which ones you like. See which ones you're good at. In some places you have a match. And then that's where you pursue. But like, like this idea that you gotta like grind kids into dust when they're seven and eight and nine years old right. is garbage. Maybe for women's Olympic gymnastics because they want the people to be like really tiny. Yeah. So they can fly more and flip more and all this. But like, any other sport, like, yeah, work your skills. Yes, get stronger, faster, blah blah blah. But like, and it's just weird though, because like, and what does it matter if like the U.S. isn't good in gymnastics? No, you don't care about gymnastics. It doesn't mean anything because (laughs) nobody cares about gym. Gymnastics is like, uh, 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 you know, when you um say, "Hey, pay the NCAA, like, pay the football players, pay the pay the basketball players," and then someone raises their hand and says. But what about fencing? If you pay the players, right. you won't be able to pay for fencing. Well, you we don't watch fencing. Right. None right. of you people watch fencing. If I put the NCAA fencing final four on ESPN right now, you would get 12 viewers. Because if it's six fencers, each of them got, uh, right. two parents, and that's who would be watching. That's it. And I don't, and that's I just want to, people don't care. I just want to clarify. I'm not saying gymnastics is whack or is not skillful. I'm saying it's not worth letting people be abusive for us like i want us to have a simone bowels i believe we'd have simone bowels whether or not you cover up a sex this is what i'm saying exactly so like that's the part i want to clarify karen what were you gonna say no and uh the thing is when morgan was talking about uh having uh children and and parents investing in not not trying to be funny a lot of parents uh, it's hard for some parents to a lot of parents live vicariously through their child through the sport that they desire to play so instead of giving the child the choice, a lot of parents push their children into some mm-hmm. shit that they want to do. So this is why they spend pointless amount of money in somebody that's actually not an athlete. They would rather be playing chess 
or right. or, yes. or or, or the, the the debate team. They'd rather be literally doing something else than this. Right. And so and also, what you see all the time is like the rich parent who spends a bunch of money on their kid early, and the kid develops early. So like 10, 12 years old, you know, uh, Becky and Chad, whose parents are lawyers, have a bunch of money. They're the best in the area because they've been trained from the time they were six. But they get to middle school, get to high school, and what happens is the people with talent start showing up. Yes. And they might not never have had, they might not ever have had a private lesson, but you know what they got? They got born at the deep end of the gene pool thanks to mom and dad. And all of a sudden, all the money mom and dad spent on your speed coach, strength coach, shot coach, don't matter. Yep. Don't matter. But at the same time, you know who the parents are going to blame? When when you realize that you peaked at 12, they're going to blame you. Right. They're going to blame the kid. They're going to yep. say, you stop working hard. You don't want it you, enough. Yeah. You let Trayvon take that spot right. from you. Yeah. Sorry, man. Trayvon got talent. He's 6'8". So, I mean, what it is. I mean, there's nothing I can do <laughs> right. against that. Like, he naturally knows how to play defense. That doesn't come naturally to me. Like you said, some things where it's just something natural around you. And the thing is, mm-hmm. a lot of those parents that do that, you have children that are like, you constantly play. Like they say, you need to play multiple sports because they were saying children that constantly play the same sports end up getting like 17, 18 and have needs of a 45 year old or a 50 year old because it's just that constant, you're constantly moving that same tendon over and over and over again. And now they don't take time off because it's literally all year round. If if, if it's a summer break, is at AU? If it's a spring break, you in the summer camp. If it's this, you do that. So it's like, when do you actually allow your child to be a child? But that goes back to the obsession that people have with sports. Yes, but this is one of the things like, again, if our daughter decides to take sports seriously, uh, because she has two parents that have talent, uh, two parents that also know the bigger picture, we can avoid. Right. Like we And we can avoid that temptation. So if it's soccer and she's six years old and some soccer coach says, hey, she got to spend 12 months a year playing soccer. You know, she don't. Right. She can have seasons. <laughs> right. And you know what you're going to, you, you know what you're going to do about it? Nothing. You know why? Because our daughter is the best natural athlete here and you want her. Right. Because the other thing she can do is just leave and go to another club. Right. You're going to give us what we want or you're not. And there it goes. Yeah. And so, like, what's next on the horizon for you two? Because I know you said something about a podcast. You're, you know, I know you got the book. How are you finding, like, stuff to write about now for, like, CBC and stuff like that? So, sports journalism wise, like, for what I do, it's not that, like, you write about where sports meets the politics, where sports meets mm-hmm. the pandemic, stuff like that, or where sports meets marketing with Mike Tyson and uh, uh, Uncle Roy Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, yeah, you don't go to as many events as you used to. Like, I had a lot of fun over the winter. I got to cover a couple of fights for the New York Times. I actually got to go out to Las Vegas for the big fight, mm-hmm. fight week, all that. I got booed by Conor McGregor's fans. <laughs> but, um, Why'd they boo you? So, basically, like, the, the topic isn't funny, but so, Conor McGregor has a couple of uh, open sexual assault cases against him back in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But no one knows, like, what the status of them is. It's, it's also a weird quirk of the way their justice system works. Like, they will announce an investigation before, like, they arrest you in a ring. So, for, like, months, people just know you're being investigated, but they haven't, you know, moved to finalize this thing or to uh, discard it. And so... 
the guy from the New York Times calls me the assignment area. He's like, hey, can you go to Las Vegas and cover this fight for us? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then they're like, here's the thing. We need you to ask Conor McGregor about these criminal charges. Okay. And so I'm going back and forth with the PR guy with the UFC. He's like, like, yeah, I think we can make it happen. Because then Conor McGregor at some point had done an interview on ESPN, and the interviewer asked him – he didn't ask him – he asked him kind of obliquely about the charges. He was like, uh, you people have written that you've done some unsavory things. How do you feel about that? He's like, oh, it's all fake. Uh, it's not going to stop my career. Like, okay, cool. So at least he's shown that he will talk about, so I'm talk about these things. So I, t- I, I lay the cards on the table early with the UFC. I'm like, we're going to talk to him about a bunch of things, but I do have to ask him about the sexual assault case. So tell him and his people just to have their answer ready. It doesn't have to be the whole interview, but I do have to ask a question. And I don't want anyone thinking that I, you know, yeah. uh, snuck up on them, that I right. sprung this on them by, you know, by surprise, any of this stuff. I'm letting you know right now. So before I leave for Las Vegas, the answer is, yeah, we'll make time. And I get there, they're like, no, he don't want to do it. So now I know I got to go to this news conference and ask him this question in front of all these people. Mm-hmm. And I know how that's going to go. So, because the news, UFC news conferences are not news conferences, they're like pep rallies, right? So there's reporters, but there's also fans. And then like the same guy asks questions, asks the first question every news conference because he's a reporter, but he's also super tight with the UFC, this kind of thing. And so I get there and it's like a wedding, right? Where like, uh, one, one fighter's friends there on one side, the other fighter's friends are on the other side, right by the, uh, the the floor where the where the reporters are. So I sit in this chair and I see all of Conor McGregor's entourage, like his training partners and stuff. They come stand behind me. So I'm like, man, I'm not going to ask this question. These dudes standing this close to me. So <laughs> I switch sides. And so they ask some questions. And then uh, so I jump up. And this thing's being streamed live on ESPN and stuff. And the other thing was I've been sick. So this is like my first day that I could actually function. I had to get on a plane and go do this thing. I'm like, man, just don't let me pass out on TV when I ask this question. Right. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm like, uh, Connor, one more question about your legal situation. Boo, all the fans, boo, oh. boo, shut up, sit down. And all, you know, the Irish fans, sit down, you cook, sit down. Oh my God. <laughs> and then like, uh, McGregor was smart because the guy he was fighting jumped up and tried to tell me to be quiet, which mm. I understand. He doesn't want, this is the most money he's ever going to make. Don't come right. screw this up with your dumb questions. <laughs> so I was like, hey, uh, can you update us on the status? And then the president of the UFC jumps up. He's like, hey, we already answered that question on ESPN, mm. which they didn't. But I'm like, I'm not, I, I can't argue these people right. doing I'm not. And so I was like, well, was there any point where you guys were concerned that that situation would um, imperil this fight? And Dana White's like, no, boo, boo, sit down, boo. And like, so <laughs> The rest of the news conference went on. Uh, and the thing was, too, I took my Twitter and my Instagram private beforehand because I knew Smart. it was going to happen. Smart. And I had, like, Irish guys messaging me on LinkedIn saying, uh, I'm going to call your boss and get you fired. What? <laughs> your boss asked you to do this. What? <laughs> yeah, like you just went rogue. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. And then, uh, like, I'm as like, man, I'm going to leave here as late as possible. I'm going to wait for all the fans to leave. But I'm, as I'm standing there, I hear, like, these fans shouting from my upper deck, hey, Mr. Sexual Allegations, turn around. Wow. <laughs> it's not even like it's, but that's the thing. It's not even like you asked a loaded question. 
no you know you didn't go uh so connor you still raping women or like what's going on with that like literally just is like it's as soft a softball as you can get with a question like that and it is relevant you're accused of that like what the fuck you could he could he could have knocked it out the park like he he, yes he could have been like everyone calm down everyone calm down this is a valid question i take these allegations very seriously blah 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 and instead (laughs) sports culture is rape culture dude it's the same shit it's all the same shit but to to answer your original question yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) uh yeah that was pre-pandemic um and so post-pandemic, yeah, you don't get those opportunities anymore to go out and cover stuff. But for what I do, because I a lot of what I do has to do with writing about and talking about the stuff around what happens on the field, I still have plenty of stuff uh, to cover. So by the time we get to this podcast, uh, probably later this year, maybe early next year, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff we'll be talking about. So it, you know, it, it helps if events are actually going on, but, you know, if they're on a, a tightened schedule like we are now we we can still work well i'm looking forward to it man i know i've been listening to you since all balls don't bounce um <laughs> shout out to my man since, Will since, since the morning jones man yeah since man before all yeah, balls don't bounce. exactly so yeah man uh shout out to Dwayne. shout out to wall street you know so it's absolutely man i can't wait to see what you got in store next because i feel like you know uh I'm always watching you on the periphery, even if, uh, <laughs> even though we haven't had you on the show in a while. And it definitely won't be, uh, six, six years, more years before we have you on the show again. I promise you that, brother. Yeah, we don't want to have so eight. much gray in this beard, man. Yeah. I we, look like Lovey Smith. We both do, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's either that or die. So I'd rather just That's keep true. getting old. I, I saw the other day on your, uh, Facebook, you was out there grilling. And I was like, that's either he's turning to the old black man that we, that I always envision him being. So, uh, tell us. Exactly and you know what, you know what yeah. I wound up doing that day too was like, uh, yelling at the little nieces and nephews for going in and out mm-hmm. of the house and letting the cold mm-hmm. air out. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and stop slamming my screen door. Yes. 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 Well, you I, weren't. I, I really felt grown in that moment. Yes, I'm not paying you're, to cool all outside. Well, you wearing? Yes, were you wearing some you're all the way in. You all the way in. You all the way out. You got to make a choice. Were you wearing some overtoe sandals, some leather <laughs> overtoe sandals with some socks? No. I haven't had leather overtoe sandals in a minute. Yeah, I haven't had a pair of thong sandals somewhere. There you go. Well, leather. that's next. Is yeah. once you yes. get to the leather overtoe, that's what you need to get for your birthday. Okay. <laughs> Next Father's Day, leather overtoe sandals, and then you hit the grill. Um, but yeah, um, make sure y'all uh, ch- tell them where all to find you, uh, Morgan. Uh, best way to find me is on Twitter at Morgan P Campbell, Instagram at Morgan P Campbell. Um, those are probably the best two places uh, because I always keep people updated there. Anything I'm working on, I post there. Um, yeah. And Sunday nights, I tweet about 90 Day Fiance. Yeah, and if you're a, um, you know, Irish Conor McGregor fan, don't worry about finding them, okay? <laughs> you, just, you just mind your business. <laughs> What's that thing? Like, technically, I still don't even have a job. So <laughs> listen, I was a pure freelancer. You can't fire me because I'm already fun employed. They're going to they gonna find you while you're tweeting about 90 Day Fiance and try to ruin your night. So just I, just leave them alone, okay, guys? Uh, once again, thank you for being here. Thank um, you. This is a final hey, show. Thank you for having me. Oh, no. Oh, man like i said it's always a pleasure man yes. um and this is uh the last show of the week to our feedback show saturday so uh thanks to all the fans for listening been a busy week um thanks to morgan for coming through yes. and until next time i love you i love you too Mwah. hey i love you too too <laughs> oh.